on this Thursday edition of the Mackling and McGarry podcast, minus the Mackling, we'll hear from a group of people who are walking across Canada in memory of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. We'll meet a guy who had a tumor the size of a baseball in his brain. We will learn about an effort to shine a light on a pulp fiction figure from the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, a figure named Sally the Sleuth. And we'll talk to a guy who went to all 47 7-Eleven locations in Winnipeg to have a Slurpee on free Slurpee Day. That's so much Slurpee. The next guests I'm about to introduce you to, they walked here from Elmwood this morning. And if you think that's impressive, well, they walked here from Ontario as well. A small group of young people trekking across the country in memory of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. The group started at Chippewas of Nawash Unceded First Nation on the Bruce Peninsula in southern Ontario. They arrived in Winnipeg last night. They're going to stay here for a few days rest. And the goal is to walk to the West Coast and then turn around and head east. So we're joined live by three of them who are on this journey. We have, to my right, we have Inad Maget. And then to my left, we have Jasmine Maitwayashing and Jacqueline Hines, all joining us live in studio. Good morning to all of you. Good morning. So we'll start with you, Inad Maget. Um, when did you begin this journey? Because to walk here from southern Ontario, from the tip of southern Ontario, um, that's got to take a while. Yeah, it's definitely taken a while. Uh, we started on December 21st, 2017. <laughs> December 21st. Get yes. you to come just a little bit closer to yeah, the microphone no if you could. So when did you come up with the idea to, to walk across Canada? Well, the idea came up uh, in our home community. We were on a water walk around the perimeter of our territory and working uh, and walking with my friend Carleen Kijig, uh, we came across this idea of, due to the conversations that we had on the walk. And uh, essentially from there, we started slowly building support, uh, reaching out to the AFN, going to the, uh, the Assembly of First Nations when they were gathered in Regina last year. And slowly build up from there, uh, working with different organizations, speaking with uh, individuals within the uh, National Inquiry, and kind of learning what is uh, what is currently happening in uh, today's society as far as the Inquiry, and also as far as what First Nations communities are doing on their own. Well, and I understand as well, you've had a bit of a rough time in the little while, <laughs> last little while. You had a Winnebago van. Uh, that broke down east of Kenora. <laughs> so do you have a, like, so what happened? Would you walk for a bit and you'd have someone following? Yeah. Okay. Um, we would essentially do a relay system where uh, we'd space ourselves about five kilometers apart, um, permitting that there is somewhere to pull over. Sometimes that distance was greater. <laughs> um, so yeah, pretty much just working hand-in-hand uh, in hand and trying to save each other's feet as best we can. Do you have a vehicle now? Oh, uh, we do. We still have the uh, the Winnebago that you mentioned. It's a 1982 Winnebago Brave, so technically it's a classical vehicle, and that makes the parts a little more inaccessible. A little harder to, to come up with, I'll bet. Yes. Now, Jacqueline Hines, I understand as well that, uh, were you on the, have you been on the walk the whole time? Yep, I started on day one. <laughs> so what happened in Thunder Bay? I understand that uh, you met some, shall we say, unfriendly people. Unfriendly people in Thunder Bay? Uh, 
Se, se, I can't really recall. The, uh, you mar- it says the visit was slurs. marred by racial slurs. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we were in Thunder Bay and um, walking down the road, and uh, we were seeing cars that had, like, SS bolts on the front of the car or 1488 on the car or... SS bolt? Uh, like um, uh, the Nazi SS-like mm. symbols on the front of the car, so... But not very subtle about that viewpoint. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there was like moments where uh, we like I was walking with somebody and like people flipped the bird at us. But you know things like that. But for the most part, like there are like negative parts like that. But those don't outnumber like the positive that we receive. Like for every negative moment we have, there's at least twenty people who are honking and waving and like. It's been just like a really ex- positive experience. Are you carrying signs or anything while you're walking or a flag or anything like that? No, we just have um, our prayer staff uh, right now. Uh, we've been meaning to label our RV. We're getting to it. But yeah, for the most part, we just have a um, prayer staff with um, eagle feathers on it that was made in um, uh, Neashitaming where we started. It was um, started with um, the community there. Some of the children made the prayer ties that are on the staff. Um Elder our elders uh, helped us make it too, so there's like a whole like community thing with it. So yeah, we have some breaking news from sports. By the way, uh, this just coming in: the Winnipeg Jets have signed All-Star goalie Connor Hellebuck to a six-year, thirty-seven million dollar contract, which works out to average value of six point one six million dollars. We are speaking with some members of the Prayerful Walkers who are walking across Canada. They started in southern Ontario. They just arrived in Winnipeg yesterday in memory of murdered and missing Indigenous women and girls. And Jasmine Maitwe-Ashing is the third party of our in-studio today. Jasmine, come a little closer to the microphone. Um, You just joined the party yesterday? Yes, that's correct. Are you from Winnipeg? Um, No, I'm from two hours outside of Winnipeg. Okay. From like Manitoba First Nation. So how did you join uh, this pursuit? Um, it's kind of funny because I was on a different walk <clears throat> with Brenda Osborne, and we were they are coming from Norway House, so they must have walked like thirteen hundred kilometers, and we just made it into Winnipeg yesterday too, and we heard about this group who was who were walking for missing and murdered too, so we got in contact with them and we went to meet up with them and help them continue the journey into Winnipeg. So it was really exciting. And Are you going to stay with them or are you just helping um, them as they get through Winnipeg? Um, as far as I'm concerned, I'm staying with them now. I think they got a lifer, so <laughs> cool. <laughs> so in on Maget, uh, when, you, when you encounter someone who now wants to join with you, uh, is that, you know, is that the kind of inspiration you were hoping to promote as you walk across the country? Yeah, most certainly. Um, We're as inclusive as we can possibly be, uh, reaching out to as many individuals and organizations. And it just so happened that this time around, we uh, had the chance to meet up with Brenda Osborne and her walkers. And as we walked, we were able to share stories and commonalities that we've experienced in our own journeys. And then, yeah, Jasmine kind of just struck it up with one of our other walkers, uh, Neven, And just, yeah, ever since then, we've kind of been hanging out together. and. Yeah. You know, uh, essentially just 
sharing stories of the same troubles and stuff that we've experienced. So the goal is to walk from sea to sea to sea. Yes. So uh, have, have you been to any of the three seas yet? <laughs> uh, personally, in my private life, yes. Okay, but on the walk? No. Uh, since we started in the middle of Ontario, the closest thing to a sea was like Lake Superior. Okay. Um, but other than that, we've just been within the mainland. We struggled uh, with Ontario for a while there. We lost a little over three months with uh, vehicle issues altogether. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, we're really excited to be out of Ontario into Manitoba. Um, and we were able to make it into Winnipeg in, what, three days, four days? Four days. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, in comparison to the six months that we spent in Ontario, it's great progress. So what's the, the, the planned map then? You go west and then north and then back east? Yeah, we're going to be heading um, west along the Highway 1 and then uh, further north into uh, through North Battleford, uh, and I can't really remember uh, all the. Towns. Well, we don't need the the full <laughs> route, yeah. but uh, so do you have an end date in uh, <laughs> ish <laughs> approximate? Yeah, we did have one in mind. Uh, originally, we thought that the journey would take no more than fourteen months. Um, now we're learning, um, one of the lessons that one of our elders, uh, gave us before we left. Um, we were told that, yes, we may have an intention of when we're going to finish, but things are going to unfurl as they do. And we've, well, we've learned that lesson. There's been times where we've been really frustrated with our lack of progress, but then it turns out that it's for a reason we end up meeting someone who's either helped us or we've been able to help. So we've kind of uh, thrown the time frame out the window and just more accepted uh, kind of a passive role in the uh, time frame. Well, there is a Facebook page. If you want a link to it, just shoot me an email, brett at cjob.com, and I will forward it to you as well. If, if you want to make a donation to this, because if you're walking across country, you need some money and you'll probably need some help. So if you want to make a donation to this, uh, shoot me an email and I'll get you a link for that. Inad Maget, Jacqueline Hines, and Jasmine Metoyashing, part of the Prayerful Walkers Walking Across Canada in Memory of Murdered and Missing Indigenous Women and Girls. Uh, I, I salute you and congratulate you on, on this effort. Uh, I think it's an amazing story. And thank you for sharing it with us this morning oh, on CJOB. Thank you, thank you all. Thank you. We like to bring you stories of hope from Winnipeg's hospitals. We want to do that right now. One such story involves a man who a couple of years ago learned that he had a tumor in his brain, and he's here with us today. Fred Narozniak, he was treated at HSC for a baseball-sized tumor found in his head, and he's not exaggerating. He, he brought in pictures of the, the scan, and he I've just put it on our Instagram story. If you want to see it yourself, Fred is here in studio. Fred, this goes back to 2015, correct? Um, 20, 2015, 2016 of uh, September 2016 uh, is when I got new, uh, or I got glasses be before that. Um, but it was about a yeah, 2015 was when first uh, signs of uh, offness or whatever was showing up. And that, that was after I got glasses. And for about a year of changing lenses and stuff like that. I went to my GP, uh, Dr. Risk, and, and he sent me for a CT scan at, um, at St. Boniface Hospital. Now, um, from that point, uh, it took 
uh, minutes by the time I got home and I had a, a, a message from my daughter, you got to phone the hospital. The radiologist called and so I talked to her and she said, you know, not to alarm you, but you have a, a really large mass in your brain and I'm phoning your doctor in the morning. So <clears throat> she had done that and the next morning I went to see Dr. Risk and he expedited things very quickly, got me in to see Dr. Biko at Health Sciences Center. And that was within days of that um, first CT scan. Um, from there, I had an MRI at Health Sciences, met Dr. Kaufman. And uh, October 19th, I had it out. Uh, and there's a small portion left, but uh, that will be dealt with if uh, the piece of tumor decides to grow again. It's a benign tumor. So um, uh, it may never decide to grow again. It's Right now it's stable. But uh, thanks to technology, and I would like to uh, uh, just say that uh, um, my life has changed. It, it, uh, it, uh, it, it makes you stop and think of, uh, uh, you know, how, how fragile life is. And uh, that there are people out there that are going to help you. And, uh, yeah. So, Fred, when you first learned about this, the, the only symptom you were suffering from was dizziness? Yeah, it was kind of like a offness. Like uh, if you spun yourself in a circle a couple of times and you waited for the images to stop. And just the way you feel after that, you feel a little off balance. And actually, that's the way I feel today. I still feel that way. Um, and that's because the small piece that's left is sitting on my third nerve, and that uh, is eye movement of my right eye. Um, the biggest issue I do have is the trigeminal nerve that was affected, and that, that gives me facial pain, which will go away in time. So, But uh, the biggest news is that it hasn't grown, and that when and if it does decide to grow, uh, I've you know been told that that gamma knife that uh, we have in Winnipeg at Health Sciences will take care of it. And uh, I'm I'm very very glad to be in Winnipeg. <laughs> Is that what they used to take it take out what they did take out? No, um, Doctor Kaufman did my main surgery. It was a nine and a half hour surgery, and it was microsurgery. So they basically put a little port in, and they used a really high powered microscope, and they used small tubes and devices to get the tumor out. So the gamma knife is is a uh, is a radiation technique where it's 182 bolts of radiation that meet at one point, and it's a very precise radiation, not like your normal radiation where it's more like a shotgun blast. A, a gamma knife is more precise, like a, a very like pinhead that it can you know can pinpoint. You know that's how precise it is, um, and very effective from what I have been researching. <laughs> so. Fred Narozniak is our guest. He had a tumor the size of a baseball in his head, but thanks to the folks at HSC, uh, that is not the case anymore. But uh, you say that the, the tumor that is remaining, because they didn't take the whole thing out, Fred, mm -hmm. uh, you say that what's left is benign, but because it's still in there, it's causing you some pain, right? Yeah, um, the, the tumor itself um, doesn't cause a pain. I think the biggest thing is when they did the main surgery and took out the majority of the main part of the tumor, it was sitting on my fifth nerve, which is the trigeminal nerve. So they didn't damage the nerve per se, but they tugged at it. So it was kind of explained to me like your computer goes out, it blanks out. So now it's rebooting. Oh, boy. 
So it's relearning. So my right side of the brain is learning from my left side of the brain. It's it's learning how to feel again. So the pain comes from the nerve relearning. So it doesn't know how to feel. So it's figuring it out, and it is. It it is progressing, and it's it's. Uh, the pain changes in different parts of my face. Right now, it's mostly in my teeth and my gums, uh, only on the right side. So it's, it's odd. You, know, you draw a line in the middle of your head, yeah. and half your teeth, half your tongue, half your nose, everything is burning and changing feeling, but it's all a good sign. You know, it's not that, like that's a bad sign. It's actually a good sign that that's happening because without it, I would never feel again. So uh, another good thing that came out of my last conversation with Dr. Kaufman was um, the the piece of tumor that's left is benign, but it's a type of tissue that can't, it won't turn into cancer. There are some benign tumors that will turn into cancer, and this one won't. So that was good news, you know. So, But uh, the piece that's remaining is sitting on my third nerve, which controls eye movement. Now, we were talking earlier about uh, my offness feeling kind of dizzy. Well, that's the problem. It's that piece that's left on there. Uh, When I crank my eyes way up, I see double vision. But if I look normally and just in my normal movements, there is no double vision. I have to actually force myself to see double vision. Well, the reason why we left it in there was so that I wouldn't have double vision because I probably would have woken up from surgery with double vision and I was told you wouldn't be very happy if you woke up with that. So the plan is because it's benign and the piece that's left is stable, it's been stable for over a year, um, year and a half, I guess now, um, we will gamma knife it if it does decide to grow. So that's our plan and and uh, i'm i'm you know I, i'm grateful that i'm i'm actually here and i'm still above ground and i'm i'm uh, pushing forward doing things that i like to do and um and one thing i like to do is 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 help people and and uh, uh i've been involved with other charities throughout uh, the last 10 years and uh i i, pers- I plan on pursuing even more and um uh, uh, I'm grateful that I can do it. And, you know, I, I, I never really talked to you about this before, but um, the one thing that I would like would be to be able to talk to someone if, you know, if they had a, a, a situation like mine, if they needed someone to talk to. I, there is really, in my situation, there 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 is no support group per se for that. Um, I, I'd be more than willing to talk to them, you know, uh, and uh, help them through, you know, and that's kind of a, 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 a secondary thing that I want to do besides my other fundraising things that I do. And uh, I, I, I think it's, it's part of giving back to society. Um, and um, Yeah, you said you were participated in the Ride for Dad for the last 10 years. That's yeah. for prostate cancer, for the, the challenge uh, for Life Walk, which is for Cancer Care Manitoba, I believe. Yeah. And... Uh, you know, you do all kinds of stuff. So yeah. clearly this hasn't slowed you down, has it? No, I, I continue to to do things. I, I have, like I, we talked off air about, uh, I do a Tim Lewis Outdoor Winter Classic every year, and it was the fifth year this year. And I want to proceed in, in expanding that in February to have outdoor games across Manitoba. Uh, that's kind of a goal. Yeah. But that's down the line after I feel a little bit better. <laughs> and yeah. it's getting there. And And, you know. 
that's my plan. So Well, Fred Narosniak, uh, you're an inspiration, and it's all thanks to the people at HSC who got a baseball-sized tumor, at least most of it, yeah. out of your head, and what's left in there is benign. Fred, pleasure and honor to meet you, sir. Thank you thank, very much for thanks coming. Thanks for having me. Right now we're hearing the theme for Wonder Woman because the curator, the author of The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen is back in our midst. Hope Nicholson, comic historian of Bedside Press, is here. And we're here to talk about the lost adventures of a comic book heroine, of a pulp heroine. These adventures are being brought back to life. Sally the Sleuth, and here's a headline that should grab Jerry's attention. Without Sally the Sleuth, there would be no Superman. <gasps> Jerry's a fan of a big fan of super Superman. I think he actually might be the real last son of Krypton. <laughs> so Sally the Sleuth, uh, you've been working on collecting and restoring these old comics featuring Sally the Sleuth. She actually has a couple of them in studio. How old are these? These ones are from the 1940s, but she dates back to about 1934. I put a picture, a little video on our Instagram if you want to see how beat up these things are, <laughs> which I love because the fact that these are uh, from the 40s is really cool. What did those cost you? Bought them on eBay for about 60 bucks each, and I think I got about uh, 10 of them that were really beat up and falling apart, but they had some rare issues that I hadn't ever seen before. So what is this project that you're working on with Sally the Sleuth? So Sally the Sleuth was a heroine, not a superheroine exactly, because she didn't have any superpowers. She just had a gun. And she would fight criminals, and she appeared in the pages of pulp books. But what was really neat about her is that the publisher that did these pulp books in the 1930s, which were very sexual <laughs> and uh, often very badly written, actually went on later to form DC Comics, which, of course, published Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman. Okay. And, uh, well, yeah, the name of the, these books here, uh, Spicy Detective, and I think the one, there's, there's a lot of uh, stories that are just text, but there is a comic strip one where Sally was wearing nothing but a bikini. Is that par for the course for Sally's adventures? Oh, no. She usually wears a lot less than that. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. I'll we'll have yeah. to keep searching through these books then to see some of that. So what led you to... to to go after this, to, to track her adventures and try to restore some of them in a, the form of a book. I first discovered her when I was writing The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superwomen, which was a history book I did on female characters in comics. And to me, it was really neat that the adventures of women in comics dated back way before I thought they did, so back to the 1930s. And the really cool thing about it that I thought is that they were very sexual. And so a lot of people think that the origins of comics were, you know, very clean cut and very sanitized. But it turns out the things that your grandparents and maybe even great grandparents were reading are probably worse than the stuff you're reading now. Wow. Well, yeah, I, mean, I just see here that uh, in this, this pitch that you've brought, uh, there's a content warning. Uh -huh. And it says, uh, remember... This was the same publisher that had the rule of, quote, only partial nudity allowed unless it's a female corpse. Yeah, so uh, Spicy Detective Stories had a list of rules for both their text stories and the comics that were featured inside the pulps. And uh, the rules were no male nudity at all. Female nudity is only allowed in part unless it's a female corpse, in which case full nudity is allowed. So while they weren't um, incredibly explicit, like you're not going to see genitalia, for example, uh, there was often full frontal nudity, especially of 
dead women. I wouldn't say that it's necessarily the most positive aspect of comics history, but to me that's why it's really important to bring it back, because otherwise we get this wrong idea of comics. We get the idea that they're just one thing. Uh, We get the idea that we're better now than we ever have been, but comics is really up and down. And while things were really sexual back at the beginning, she actually got really cleaned up uh, when she made the transition to her own comic series called Crime Smashers. And suddenly there was no nudity. Suddenly it was in color. Suddenly she was wearing dresses up to her neck. So it's really interesting to see that evolution of comics through the pages of her adventures. So, well, just on the subject of uh, women being sexualized in in comic books, I mean, I remember I I was big into comics in the 1990s. I remember (laughs) artists like Todd McFarlane and Eric Larson, and uh, they drew women. I mean, they drew men and women were both drawn in very unrealistic fashion. Very unrealistic. The men were uh, big power figures, so they would have small waists and giant, giant shoulders, and the women more so too, except they also had these big balloon breasts and tiny waists. Um, so it's very interesting to look at the 90s uh, characterization of comics, which we call bad girl comics, yep. because they often featured characters like Lady Death, for example. So because they were villains, it was often easier to justify putting them in really extravagant, over-sexualized poses. But the heroines also got their fair share of um, explicit content. So... For this project to happen, because you're 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 just working on this right now. Yeah, I put together a full black and white collection, but the thing that was really important to me was to be able to show her color adventures that were in the uh, late 1940s to be reprinted in color, which no one's ever done before. So there have been a few reprints of Sally the Sleuth over the years, uh, but none of them have collected as many adventures as I have for this collection, and none of them have ever reprinted her color adventures. So we're doing a little pre-funding campaign to make sure that uh, we can restore it in color. And where is that funding campaign? It's actually on a new website called ifundwomen.com, which is made for female entrepreneurs to get their projects made. Well, that's cool. Yeah. How long has that been around? Not long, because they still have a lot of bugs in their system. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. There was, uh, when the project succeeded, they sent out an email to all the funders that said, congratulations, bracket, project name, bracket, has been successfully funded. Oh. So um, <laughs> they need to work on that. So where is uh, Sally the Sleuth from? Who, who, who created her and where is that person from? Uh, that was Adolphe Barreau. And to be honest, I don't have a lot of information on him, but... Because I don't, I hired a historian, Tim Hanley, to go through and do a whole foreword that explains all the history of Adolf, who was a, a big pulp artist at the time. And he goes into the history of the publisher that became DC Comics, as well as the creator. Okay. So uh, if somebody listening right now wants to... Like, Ken, you said that you put together a black and white. Mm-hmm. Is that something that is all, that can somebody can... Yeah, buy absolutely. from you if they want. They can go to Amazon and buy it right now. Uh, it's actually through print on demand, so it's not going to be quite as high quality as the one on the iFund Women campaign, which uh, I think ends of the day of today. So if I go to Amazon and what do I look for? What do I type Sally in? Sally the Sleuth. <laughs> Sally the Sleuth, and you'll be able to find it there. Uh, but and if you want to make a contribution again, it's iFund Women, and what would you, you just same thing? Sally the Sleuth. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I got about a minute left here. We were talking about the sexualization of women in comics. How is it now? Because it's been a few years since I picked up a comic book. Yeah, I mean, if you like bad girl comics, there's definitely still stuff out there for you, like Xenoscope and Dynamite. Uh, make that still their bread and butter. So mm-hmm. it's it's never gone away completely. But we do have a lot more options that are not sexualized and a lot more options, too, for younger readers to get into the genre, which we haven't 
had in a really long time. So comics like Ms. Marvel, for example, by Marvel features a Pakistani American teenager that fights crime, and it's amazing. Cool. And, of course, it's not sexualized at all, so it's fun. That's great. Well, Hope Nicholson, thank you very much uh, once again for joining us. Do you have a website or anything you want to plug? Sure. You can go to bedsidepress.com to see all of the books that I publish. Okay. One of them is The Spectacular Sisterhood of Superhuman, which is a spectacular book. If you want to pick that up, that's still available for sale in store shelves like McNally, for example. You'd have to check with the store. I'm sure you could buy it somewhere. Yesterday was free Slurpee Day, where Winnipeg, Manitoba, once again declared the Slurpee capital of the world because yesterday was July 11, a.k.a. 7-11. And one Winnipegger wanted to make the most of it. Someone alerted me to the fact that this man named Josh Drury was riding around to all the 7-Elevens in the city, which apparently there are 47 of them, on his bike and had a Slurpee at every single one of them. Josh, I'm not sure if I should be congratulating you uh, for doing this or just congratulating you for still being alive, but welcome, sir. (laughs) Thank you. So what inspired you to do this? Um, I had got, uh, a couple years back, I'd got a, uh, a replica jersey of the old 7-Eleven sponsored cycling team from the 80s, and then I kind of got in my head, oh, I should do a ride on, uh, on Slurpee Day and get a bunch of them in, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try and get them all in. Uh, so last year I did that, and it seemed to capture people's imaginations, and this year I wasn't going to do it, but uh, my, uh, my wife and my teammates were all like, oh, you have to, you have to do this. So I, uh, I went ahead and planned the ride again. <laughs> How long did it take you to do? Uh, it was uh, about 13 hours from the, the first point to the last one. What was the first point? Yeah, I started in uh, Fort Richmond and worked uh, basically clockwise around the city from there. My goodness. Now, which flavor was the best? Because I understood they unveiled a bunch of new flavors. Uh, they did have a few uh, new ones that I was not as big a fan on i eventually settled in on uh, mostly uh, dr pepper or uh, or pepsi by the end well you didn't you didn't like the birthday cake one <laughs> not one of my favorites no uh, i didn't get to try it i wanted to stop at the one in academy but the guy there's a guy who was double parked and uh he was a pig parker as larry david would say now what size <laughs> of these slurpees were you having uh i was getting the uh uh the free ones, which I think are uh, supposed to be 7.11 ounces or something like that, I was filling them about half full, so I wasn't getting the uh, the full amount of, uh, of sugar there. So what did you have to do when you needed to, because I assume you had to, you know, relieve yourself at some point after drinking all that? Uh, yeah, I built in a few uh, uh, route options that took me through uh, wooded areas or the like <laughs> to provide the, the opportunity for that. Did you have any food throughout the day as well, or were you just fueled on Slurpees? Um, I brought a few uh, like granola bars just so I'd have something not uh, not just sugar water, but uh, mostly it was just Slurpees. <laughs> so how do you feel today? Uh, I feel uh, not too bad. I, I have a few uh, kind of stiff muscles, but overall I'm, uh, I'm feeling pretty pretty okay. And your stomach? Uh, feeling a little empty, I'll probably have a decent full meal and, uh, I, I would imagine a salad at some point today. No headache? Uh, no. Okay. What was your favorite Slurpee growing up? Um, hmm. Good question. Uh, I 
I'm gonna go with the Dr Pepper. I think that's a that's a classic that's uh, that's been good through the years. Now, do you drink Slurpees often? Um, wouldn't say terribly often. Once every every week or two, probably. Ah, oh, well, that, you know, that's I, I'd I'd say that's yeah. often. I used to have a Slurpee every day. Yeah. I would say that's excessive, bordering on yeah. problematic. <laughs> but uh, you had 47 in a day. I didn't even know there were that many 7-Elevens in the city. Are, are you, is this something you're going to keep doing? Maybe, uh, maybe you could make it a charity thing. <laughs> That's actually not a bad idea. Yeah, I hadn't uh, actually, as I said, I wasn't planning on doing it this year, but, uh, you know, everyone seems to be inspired by it. So, yeah, there's probably an angle there. Well, if people want to to go back and relive your adventure, uh, how do they find you on Twitter? Uh, I'm at uh, Drewski Winnipeg, so that's D-R-U-S-K-I-W-P-G uh, at, at Twitter or right. on Twitter. Well, Josh Drury, uh, congratulations for this, and thank you very much for joining us to tell us about your uh, story. I think this is just wild, so uh, I salute you, sir. <laughs> thank you. All right, Josh Drury, once again, he visited all 47 7-Elevens in Winnipeg and had a free Slurpee yesterday on Free Slurpee Day. I can't believe it. That's all the time we have. Behind the Glass Jerry, Shanley Vidal, and the absent Greg Mackling, all thanking you. I'm Brett McGarry. Thanks for listening to CJOB. Na, 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 na.